This is attorney Andrew Markentel and attorney Mark J. Victor, and we are the Attorneys for Freedom. You, my friends, are listening to the Peace Radicals podcast. How's it going, Mark? So excited to be doing our very first podcast from our new studio. People can see us now. Let's take a moment to appreciate this awesome um, location that we're in now. Um, We're so lucky to have such good people supporting us doing this podcast, putting this studio together to make sure that we can really ramp this thing up and make the podcast the professional level that uh, equates to what we're doing with the Live and Let Live movement. I'm really excited to get some guests in here. Um, We're all hooked up. The technology is set up that we can have people zoom in. In fact, we have a great guest zooming in today who we're going to get to in a little bit here. Um, but, uh, you know, first, you, were, you and I were talking about this in our very first maiden voyage of our studio and uh, having video as part of the podcast experience right now. We were really talking about what should we do to kind of kick it off? What should we do to kind of um, refresh uh, the show and the movement and everything like that? Maybe for people who haven't seen the first 22, 23 some odd episodes, however many we've done. Um, you know, maybe somebody's tuning into this one for the first time and they're like, what is this all about? Okay, live and let live. What 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 the heck is live and let live? Let's click on it. Um, so I think it would be a good time now to kind of just do an overview of what the live and let live movement is all about and uh, exactly what we're trying to accomplish here. So Mark, as uh, just somebody off the street and scrolling through YouTube, I see a recommended video. Maybe I'm in the freedom world. Maybe I'm into the peace world. Maybe, I don't know, maybe I just like uh, a similar video and I click it and there it goes. What is the live and let live movement? Well, you know, the first thing that I would say about it, Andy, you know, you hear this phrase, timing is everything, right? So uh, I would just say in terms of my lifespan, we have never seen a time this good to start something new. I mean, Uh, First of all, the world just had what might be one of the very, in modern times, first real world event. I mean, the whole world is just gone through or is still going through this whole coronavirus. Still going through. Still going through. Although in the United States, for the most part, I just heard from a doctor friend of mine today that we've got more cases of the flu now than we do of corona. So he pronounced it over in the United States. I guess time will tell. But the whole world just had an experience together. And I think that um, in terms of the global perspective, it's really time to say, you know what? Um, This focus that we've had on a free society, we need to think bigger than that. We need to think about a free world. The community that we live in now is the world. We just had something, we don't know exactly what, but something came out of China somehow, whether it was from a lab or it was something that passed from an animal to a human. And this issue affected the whole world. This is one of many issues now that are on the horizon, that are upon us, that are true global issues. We're in a global community now, whether we want to be or not. Yeah, right? whether you... We can't stick our head in the sand. If somebody can do something over in the other side of the world and that affects me here in Chandler, Arizona, we're in a global community. Right, and in terms of the United States, boy, there has just never been a time like this. I mean, the Republicans have pretty much imploded. They're trying to find themselves. We don't have any idea with the people on the right of the traditional political spectrum, what's going to emerge from the Republicans. And the Dems are just as much in chaos right now. And I think the level in the country, in the United States anyways, of people who are just frustrated with the current state of affairs and are looking for something new 
has never been higher. So enter the Live and Let Live movement. And uh, this is a peace movement. And as a peace movement, it has to have something to say both about legality, right, legal rules, and then also moral or ethical rules. Very, very important that people understand the difference between these two radically different types of rules and what the consequences are for violating these types of rules. So starting with the legal side, I mean, we're lawyers and we like to talk about the law. And so um, what we're saying with the live and let live movement is that the law rules that I should say that if you violate There's going to be some kind of a formal consequence, whether that, you know, someone's going to grab you and say, hey, you can't do that. We're either going to stop you from doing that. Or if you've done it, there could be some kind of punishment, right? There could be money or fines or even for the most serious violations of these kinds of rules, incarceration. So we we think as live and let livers that there's a principle here. Live and let live is a phrase, right? And this phrase describes this principle, a notion, an idea, if you will, that you're in charge of you. We're all equal, right? You're in charge of your life, and I'm in charge of my life. And your life includes things like your body, your property, your money, your time. You're, in essence, the iron-fisted dictator of you. And I'm the iron-fisted dictator of me. So the principle underlying this that we call the live and let live principle, or the 3LP for short, basically says, look, don't be an aggressor. Because when you're acting as an aggressor, one thing's for sure, you are not living live and let live, right? If you're hitting somebody over the head and being an aggressor, um, one thing for sure is that's not living in a way that is pro-freedom or pro-peace. And so as you break down aggression, because you got to put a finer tip on these ideas, what you'll find is um, using force, as I just said, being an initiator of force, that's being an aggressor. Also engaging in fraud, right? When you take somebody's property through trickery, you induce them to believe something and then you steal their property. This is a form of aggression as well. And also coercion. And so a rule against aggression ought to outlaw initiations of force, fraud, and coercion. And then for, you know, some people, maybe a little more sophisticated thinkers, I like to throw in a different category, which is we call substantial risks. Doing things that create these big risks to other people, like, for example, uh, maybe you're super drunk and you're driving down the road and you haven't initiated force or fraud or coercion, but you're on the wrong side of the road and you're swerving all over. Okay, this is the kind of thing that it violates that rule as well because other people shouldn't be subjected to substantial risks of initiations of force, right? This is the very reason that we have self-defense as a concept, right? People who understand the concepts of self-defense understand you don't have to wait until somebody's fist actually hits you. At the point where the the threat is imminent and substantial, you can hit them first and still be acting peacefully. You are not initiating force. You're using force to respond to someone else's initiation of force. And so what we're saying with this principle is that the law— should outlaw violations of this principle, force, fraud, or coercion. And it does already, right? These are what we call victim crimes. And I've been a criminal defense lawyer for 27 years, and uh, I can assure you that people who violate this rule are looking at crimes. These are things like murder, uh, manslaughter, assault, trespass, thefts, frauds. This is already against the law. 
But very importantly, what we're saying is, and we start getting into the ethics side here. If somebody is not violating that rule, well, you might not like what they're doing. You might find what they're doing is immoral or unwise or unwarranted or a bad way to live your life. And you may even try to talk a person out of doing such a thing. But as far as the law goes, if they're not violating what I will now call the rule, the live and let live principle, if they're not violating the rule, we should leave them alone. And this traditionally has been a, a very, th- well, we didn't originate this. There's a freedom philosophy with a very rich history that... Hundreds of years. Hundreds history. of years, yeah. This is what the founding fathers, the best intentions, if we ascribe the best intentions of the founding fathers, and of course they had some bad ideas as well. And bad is an understatement, right? I mean, many of them engaged in slavery and supported slavery. But the underlying philosophy... Um, that they spoke of, that they didn't apply properly, um, we're not originating it, right? This idea that sort of people should be in charge of themselves. This can get you to freedom, right? But it doesn't get you to peace. Peace requires the ethics side of the house. We need to have something more to say than just don't violate the law. And so we add into the Live and Let Live movement what we call aspirational values. Things that we wouldn't want to put in the law, but things that we want to champion nonetheless. And these are things like open-mindedness, and tolerance, and voluntary kindness, and civility, and a commitment to justice, in truth, and building high levels of trust with other people. These are things that will help if you cling to these principles, these ideas. These are going to improve your life. These are ways we cooperate and we get to win-win. You don't have to cooperate under the law. And if you don't want to cooperate and you don't agree with any of these aspirational values, that's fine. You should be left alone. But you're not really part of this movement, right? So we would oppose in the Live and Let Live movement anybody who would say, you know, this is a great idea, open-mindedness and tolerance. Let's pass a law that says you have to be open-minded and tolerant of other people. We would be the first ones to stand up and say, look, even though we agree with these aspirational values, It's very important to understand the difference between a legal rule and a moral rule. A legal rule is when it violates the principle. Everything else is in the moral world, but we champion these values nonetheless because we're trying to get to peace, right? And it's very important that people, number one, understand the difference between a legal rule and a moral rule. Legal rule, if you violate that, something's going to happen to you. A moral rule, these are also very important, and I don't mean to discount the importance of moral rules. Very important. We need to really push these. But, you know, if you violate an ethics rule or a moral rule, we're not going to have formal consequences. You know, the community may have informal consequences. People might not want to be your friend. They may shun you. They may say, look, you're no longer invited to my house for dinner. But if you, they may the, try to peacefully convince you to adopt their moral principles. Of course, and that's the that's the marketplace of ideas, and that's perfectly fine. So you have a right to be a peaceful jerk. You can be a completely closed-minded, uncivilized, uh, unkind person, and we would say you should be left alone, even as a jerk, so long as you don't violate the rule that we talked about. And so this is what the Live and Let Live movement is about. It's a way to to reason from a principle that we think all reasonable people will agree with, right? Because to say you don't agree with the principle is to say that 
by definition, you are in favor of aggression. You can't be reasoned with. Reason is using the tool of conversation and persuasion. And if you're against that, then you're just saying, look, I'm in favor of using force as a, as a way to persuade or, or to coerce other people. You're unreasonable. And so uh, we are actually looking for the reasonable people. Not everyone in the world is reasonable, right? Some people will say, no, I like to initiate force. I'm a thug. I steal people's money or I push people or I get what I want that way. All right, these people are not good people for the live and let live movement. We're looking for the reasonable people in the world. And I got to tell you, uh, I've traveled quite a bit of the world. And you know what I've found? People are more similar than they are different. Yeah, we eat different foods. We got different color skin. We have, we're in different cultures. We sing different songs and celebrate different holidays. But at the end of the day, most people don't like being aggressed upon. Most people will agree that in most moral codes, by the way, this is what we call the least common denominator of morality because whether you're coming from a religious perspective or an, you're an objectivist or you have some other type of ethics that you subscribe to, chances are pretty high that your ethical code says it's wrong to be an initiator of force. Well, this concept of live and let live is so universally accepted already. Like you hear it. I mean, who could disagree with that? Hey, we're for living and let live. I mean, who is going to take a staunch anti-live and let live position? It would be a re- an unreasonable position. Yeah, one critically important thing about this is it's not enough to get people to agree to this, right? Once they agree to this, it's very, very important. Uh, And this is something else that the Live and Let Live movement brings to the table, which is how do we talk about these things? And so first, we like to lead with the principle, right? We put it right out there. I'm for Live and Let Live. How do you feel about Live and Let Live? And let's talk about the principle. But once we get agreement on that principle and maybe even the aspirational values, we then have to talk about how the principle applies to everybody. I don't care what your skin color is, whether you're rich or poor or fat or thin or where you were born on the planet or anything about your political views or anything. This applies to everybody equally. Nobody outranks anybody here on the planet Earth. We're and, all, and that includes groups of people. And that's what I'm getting governments, to. Governments, agents. Yes, and so if it applies to everybody, even if you form a group, if you get together and say, hey, we're now a group, Sorry, your group doesn't get to violate the rule either. How could it? It's just made up of the people. The people make the group. And even if we deal with bigger groups, right, big organizations, or maybe even corporations, uh, corporations shouldn't get a break. They should strictly be held to exactly the same standard that everybody else. Why would we want corporations to initiate force or fraud or coercion or do things to put us at substantial risk? So then you get to the biggest group of all, the government. Well, just because you call it a government and it has lots of people doesn't mean that the government should automatically get to violate the rule. Why on earth would we want a government or any organization or any person to violate the force, no force, no fraud, no coercion, and no substantial risks rule? So if you can make peace with that, that idea that, you know what, we can actually have a civilized productive, prosperous, happy society without violating that rule. If you buy into that, 
Welcome to the movement. And, and you know, join us. You can go to liveandletlive.org and be part of the solution. Join the movement. Become a member. Maybe you are more ambitious than that. Start a chapter. This is a world movement. It's not kicking off until March of 2023. So there's, we're still in a pre-launch mode. You could be one of the early people to be part of the solution, to, to unite everybody on the planet around a simple idea Live and let live. All right. Well, that was an excellent 30,000-foot view for the person who just clicked on this video and maybe doesn't know what uh, what the movement's all about. Um, and I'm sure we're going to get deeper into it with our guest, who I'm excited to bring Me on too. right now. So here, appearing by Zoom, we have Dr. Mary Ruard, and she is a research scientist, ethicist, libertarian author. Um, she received her BS in biochemistry in 1970 and her PhD in biophysics in 1974. She is very involved in the international uh, freedom community, and I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit about all the exciting things she has going on around the world. Dr. Ruert, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. So why don't you start by giving our listeners a little bit of background about you? Okay, well... As you mentioned, I'm a research scientist by profession. I'm currently consulting. I've left the pharmaceutical industry after 19 years in it. And during that time, I realized how the 1962 amendments to the Food and Drug Act were reshaping the pharmaceutical industry, changing the practice of medicine, and shifting our medical paradigm from prevention to treatment. And so... A few years ago, I, I wrote a book about that because there's been so much in the way of research studies done on the industry, and I was surprised when I did the calculations by just putting everything together that's in the literature uh, and, and discovering that the FDA has shaved five to ten years off each of our lives. And you, know, you were talking about government aggression earlier, and it's very prevalent in the medical and health care industry, so much so that it's very difficult to use prevention without running afoul of the FDA in many ways. And actually, uh, several libertarians uh, who started Life Extension Foundation were pivotal in uh, standing up to the FDA at a time when their attorneys told them they were going to do prison time for being, bringing coenzyme Q, which is a natural substance your body makes, from Japan into the U.S. And there it was a prescription drug in Japan, so the FDA felt like it could put these people in jail. And they said for a long, long time for uh, putting this out on the market. And uh, the founders of Life Extension decided they would fight the FDA in spite of their attorney's advice. They won. It took them eight years, really, to get the, I can't remember, 30-some charges dismissed. And that really changed the way that the prevention industry operates today because the FDA was shutting down so many health food stores and even pet food manufacturers because they were putting vitamins and things like that in their pet foods. Really crazy. Um, coenzyme Q, by the way, is the, the um, nutrient that doctors recommend today if you're taking statin drugs, and that's because it helps counteract the effects, side effects that the statin drugs have. So, you know, this is a very important 
thing that we would not have in this country were it not for people who were willing to stand up to the government's aggression in, in the prevention industry. You know, Mary, I don't have a Ph.D. in biophysics, and therefore I don't have an opinion about what types of drugs um, or preventative things people ought to put in their body. I absolutely have no idea. But what I am clear about is who gets to make that decision, right? That's Isn't that really what we're talking? I don't know. Uh, I, I know. Exactly. I, I don't know. and you know, I choice according to the FDA so right this we can put this we can put this issue in the category of who gets to who's in charge of your body for the person listening or watching the podcast the question I would present you is who's in charge of what gets put in your body now now if you're not a competent adult well then your mommy or your daddy is going to decide or your guardian will decide but if you're a competent adult, what we're saying, and the only thing we're saying really on this point as a live and let liver is you should decide. Now, you get to de- you could consult nobody and just take a chance and put whatever you want in your body, but it would I wouldn't recommend that. I would say, you know, why don't you consult the people like Mary Ruart who know what the heck they're talking about and have done research and who have read studies and there's a, there's a lot of people like Mary out there who are happy to give you their opinions and other people will disagree and you can find an organization you try like why is this so hard? It should be very easy to understand. And you know what? It resolves all of the arm wrestling over what people should get to put in their body. The issue isn't what should they get to put in their body. The issue is who decides what's put in the body, right? And, of course, you only well, get to decide right. for you. You're, if you, We're all only in charge of one body, right? So you get to decide for you, and I get to decide for me. This is pretty – like, we should be able to move on from this issue. Well, let me play a little dev- devil's advocate and get the doctor's take here. What about the obvious argument here that we need to streamline this stuff, right? It would be impossible for us in every decision that we make to take all the time to research and consult all the experts that we need and all the things. It's so much easier for our government, maybe even in our own minds acting as our agent, to filter this information for us and have something like the FDA, which quickly streamlines, hey, this doesn't meet our standards. I've made your life easy because you don't have to spend the next eight hours of your day working mom, doing research on blood pressure medications. Here's what passes. Here's what doesn't. What do you have to say to that, doctor? Well, of course, it's a one agency, the FDA, that gets to decide, and they have their opinion, which may not be correct. And if you notice, when COVID hit, the FDA for six weeks said we could not import tests, COVID tests from anyone else. And the only test we could use in this country was the CDC, another government agency, Center for Disease Control. So for six weeks, we didn't have a test because the CDC's was contaminated, which if you think about it, it's an awful thing to have happen. So um, not only was the FDA inept in singling out the CDC, but the CDC was inept. And this is what happens with government because it doesn't have the same incentives that a private company does. You cannot sue the FDA if it withholds an important medication or test from you. Um, They have sovereign immunity. And so this is a real problem. Now, of course, to answer your question, because it's a very important one, what's ideal is to have certification. 
which is where a number of different groups give their opinion on what they think. So you can talk with your health care provider and compare these opinions and make a decision if you think it's something you should take. And the, the good news about that is we've actually seen some um, agents, uh, not agencies, uh, groups that are really civilian groups, uh, I would say not even medical groups, that have looked at things like cancer drugs. The Abigail Alliance is the one I'm thinking of. And the Abigail Alliance started because Abigail's father was very angry that the FDA did not let Abigail take a cancer drug that was still in development, haven't, hadn't yet been approved, but it was like the first drug of its kind for her cancer. And they finally gave permission a few days before she died, which was a little late. So he was very upset. And now what he does is his um, organization looks at the cancer studies that the drug companies are doing, and they have recommended 40 drugs in the past decade or two for approval by the FDA two years before the FDA actually approved them. So if, if, if a citizen group can do such a good job because every single of those 40 drugs they recommended was eventually approved, and they can tell two years before the FDA approves, clearly something is going on and that something is politics. So there's a lot of, you know, politics involved in the FDA. We can get, we can get talking more about that if time permits. But so, you know, you're really not getting the kind of information you think you're getting from the FDA. Mm -hmm. I would also mention that the FDA did the same moratorium mm -hmm. on importing uh, protective gear. So we had our healthcare workers reusing disposable equipment because new manufacturers in this country were not allowed to start up and make this. And there was this huge demand, of course, because of COVID. And they weren't allowed to import as either. So six weeks without that. And then you might remember when the um, hand sanitizers were not available anymore. People rushed to get them and the shelves were empty, right? The whiskey distiller said, we will make hand sanitizers. We'll just make it with ethanol, drinking alcohol, instead of isopropanol. Booze it's to the rescue. Alcohol. Love it. But the FDA said, no, 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 you can't do that. Not unless you put a poison in your hand sanitizers because somebody might drink it. Now, I don't know anybody who drinks hand sanitizers, but <laughs> that's what the FDA said. And I, I have the impression that some whiskey distillers made those without the poison because what would happen in many cases, they would not be able to clean their equipment. So they'd have to replace all their equipment, which is very costly. And, um, of course, eventually we got hand sanitizers. But once again, the FDA was very restrictive as to who could do it. And even when they tried to come to the rescue, the whiskey distillers had to risk their equipment in order to serve that need. You know, about 30 years ago, I was one of the people that um, probably was in the camp of questions that Andy posed, right? I would think about things like, wow, if everybody got to decide for themselves what to put in their bodies, this would be complete chaos. And then I learned about one of my favorite games to play. I love this game. It's called, What Do You Think Would Happen Next? And I was taught this game 
by my law professor, Butler Schaefer, because I was the guy who would walk into his office and say, you know, I heard you say, Butler, that everybody should get to decide for themselves what goes in their body. And then I was, do you realize the kind of chaos if the government stopped telling people what was safe and what was unsafe? Do you realize the kind of craziness? I would have no idea. What am I supposed to sit down and read? I'm a lawyer. I don't do this stuff. I can't read studies and figure out which studies were the best done studies and which answers are best and how this applies to me and this, that, and that. I don't have time for this. This is why we have division of labor and we need the FDA to do these things. It would be complete chaos if they got out. And Butler would just play the what do you think would happen next game with me? He would just sit there and look at me and smile and say, what do you think would happen next? I said, well, People would be taking all kinds of crazy things, and then it'd be stories about, you know, people having horrible reactions and this and that. He says, yeah, that sounds terrible. What do you think would happen after that? And I would say, I don't don't know. I mean, maybe somebody with some authority, I don't know, the Cleveland Clinic or Harvard Medical School or somebody in authority would step up and say, you know, we've we've noticed that people are taking crazy things and they're having horrible reactions. Here's what we think is the best thing for you to take under whatever circumstances. And then, of course, other places would compete. And uh, what would happen next? Well, there'd be so many people who would be telling us so many things I wouldn't be able to figure it out. Well, what do you think would happen after that? Well, probably the ones that do the better job of of sort of giving the good information, right? Because, hey, you know, this provider of information gave us terrible information and people listen to them and bad things happen. But, but these guys over here seem to give better information. Or I don't know, maybe somebody would sort of collect all of the people who give information and say, you know, these are the top 10 information providers. And shortly thereafter the light bulb would go off in my head. And I would say, of course, of course this is what, there'd be a couple, two or three that have different philosophies, right? Here's the little more riskier people over here who are saying, ah, this is okay. Then there'd be the very, very conservative groups that would say, no, 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 we need 25 more studies before we can give an answer. And, you know, people would decide who they trust over time. And um, the, the market, if you will, of people who want this type of information would, pr- would get it from the sources that they trust. And all of this without anybody violating the rule. All of this, very importantly, without anybody imposing force or fraud or coercion. So maybe at the beginning it would be complete chaos. Like imagine if the FDA stopped inspecting who had safe hamburgers and who didn't have, and McDonald's was free to put out rancid meat hamburgers if they wanted to. I mean, that, that could happen if the FDA pulled out, right? But But if you stop the analysis right there, you don't figure out the answer. You say, what would happen next? I don't know. Probably people would stop going to McDonald's and maybe McDonald's would say, you know, we uh, we hire the most stringent uh, inspectors and they come in and they're a third party tester and they do this, that and the next thing. And then Wendy's would say, no, 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 we've got the safest burger. They'd be competing to attract people who cared about getting hamburgers that were not rancid and horrible and unhealthy. And the ones who kept serving bad meat, especially in the world with the internet, right? How long does it take to go to do a search on the internet who's putting out the best hammer? This isn't a problem. We, we can solve this stuff really easily by just playing the what, what do you think would happen next game for the vast majority of questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and actually the AIDS patients kind of did that, you know. they What they did while we were working on things for AIDS, they actually 
violated the patents and they hired black market chemists to make the same things we were working on in the pharmaceutical industry. And by the time the FDA actually gave us permission to test some people, every AIDS patient in the country that wanted our drugs had already had them and were resistant. So we had to wait for new people to be diagnosed. And they had a pretty good safety record. And they brought things in from other countries, and they did a lot of nutritional things. And if you watch the award-winning movie Dallas Buyers Club, you saw how the FDA prosecuted and persecuted these poor sick people who were just trying to stay alive. And what they did actually uh, improved, for the most part, improved their life. You know, they, they were pretty sensible about it. They told people, well, here's the side effects we know about. And it's too bad that we couldn't tap in to that treasure trove of information. But, you know, of course, it was, it was really what they were doing was totally illegal. Uh, so that, a lot of that great information was lost. And that's too bad because I thought they did a pretty good job of, you know, trying to make it as safe as possible for the people who took these drugs and took the other things too, you know, the other nutrients from other countries or other drugs from other countries. And, you know, the reason they had to do that is because these 1962 amendments to the Food and Drug Act uh, actually added a whole 10 years to the development time of drugs. It used to be four years from the lab bench to the marketplace. After these uh, amendments were passed, since these things are open-ended, there's more and more studies added every year. So by the time the turn of the century happened, it was 14 years to get a drug to market. I mean, people can't, dying people can't wait. Even today, we have ALS patients making drugs in their kitchen. Now, that's dangerous. It's much more dangerous than having the pharmaceutical company do a great manufacturing because you know they know what they're doing they do this all the time and have a pure drug rather than something that's probably contaminated simply because you know with kitchen equipment it's it's rather difficult to manufacture these drugs so we have people making drugs in their kitchen today because they can't get the drugs that they want it's it's not only tragic it is one of the most uncompassionate things that the that the government does. I mean, totally. they do a lot of unpassionate yeah. <clears throat> things, but you know, being in the healthcare industry, that just really frustrates. And of course, I think it's important to point out that if if people want to wait the fourteen years until. Uh, the most conservative yeah. people say, hey, you know what, we've decided absolutely and nobody's telling you you have to do anything here. And we're only talking about competent adults making decisions over their own bodies. But so the thought that runs through my head, Mary, um, is what you say makes so much sense. And yet this isn't the way the world works. And I'm wondering on what your take is, because you and I have known each other in a very long time. Um, we, we haven't we haven't really been close that time, and it's that's probably my fault, and I regret that because I know you have so much to offer and say, and you've done you've been such a tremendous asset in this area of um, trying to move the world in a more pro freedom, more peace direction. But why is it you think that the world is not already calibrated around this live and let live principle? Like, what's the holdup here? What why can't we get through to people? Well, you know, yeah, there's a difference between the world and the U.S. So um, if you look at the Economic Freedom of the World Index or the personal or political freedom of the world index, you see it actually is increasing in the world for the most part. But in the U.S., it's actually what's really started the whole thing. I mean, we were as close to freedom 
as you could be for the time. We were the freest country in the world for a long time. We no longer are. We're like number 10 or something. Um, and, and that's because I think we've, we've lost sight of what political freedom means. Today, people think freedom means freedom to do what you want. But freedom, in a political sense, is freedom from government aggression. Because government aggression is what mostly keeps you from doing what you want. <laughs> and um, I think people have tended to start looking to government as almost a god, as parents. So, you know, if you have an abused child and you try to convince the child that, hey, the parents are abusing you, they don't really love you, you know, it's about them. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a hard sell for those children because they would rather think that there's that they're misbehaving and their parents actually love them than they want to think that their parents abuse them. And I think the citizenry of our country is the same way. They want to believe in government. They want to believe that the government is looking out for them because it makes them kind of feel safe, you know? The government's doing the FDA thing so we can be safe. And, and for example, uh, and so I think it's kind of horrific for some people to acknowledge that the government is not, for the most part, is not their friend, that it is the biggest aggressor that they'll probably meet in their life. That's a very scary concept because they've been looking towards government uh, as a creator of jobs, as a creator of money, as it's the protection, you know, we're, in other words, government is protecting us from evil corporations or government is protecting us by sending our young people overseas to kill the terrorists before they can come here, which, you know, all of this, of course, is not protecting us. It's doing just the opposite for the most part. And government spending, for example, creates inflation. So it actually is like a huge tax on all of us. And, and most poverty in the world today is created by government regulation. We can talk about that for a little while if you want me to go into that. But that's been my conclusion. But people have a really hard time acknowledging that because then they have to acknowledge that their so-called protector is actually abusing them. Given that we have the best message, which is freedom and personal responsibility, and we want to encourage people to take control of their own lives, why aren't more people subscribed to this? What has been you've you've been a prominent libertarian and involved in the freedom movement through libertarianism, and we speak to libertarians all the time. We've had many on our podcast, and you know one of the questions that we like to ask is, in your opinion, what's the failing here? Why why aren't more people subscribed to our uh, to our movement? And I'll caveat that with. Um, you know, a, a tone of optimism because we have grown. The freedom crowd has grown significantly in de- in the in recent decades, and there's a lot to be said for that, especially given that we've had maybe the wrong approach. Um, but in your opinion, Doctor, what uh, what are we lacking, and um, what do you think about this newfangled uh, "live and let live" uh, principle-based approach that we're trying to launch here? Well, yeah, I have two two uh, thoughts on this. Uh, first, in my experience when I talk to people about these principles, most of them are willing to be aggressed against as long as they can aggress against the people they want to aggress against. In other words, they're willing to trade their freedom if they can limit other people's freedom. And there's a really large number of people who hold that view because they feel like these other, this other group, whatever it is, is such a big threat 
that they have to have the government there to make these people back off or do what they want to do. And that way, you know, they feel that even though they're going to get aggressed against at some point, that they will somehow be able to cope with that or defend themselves. And they probably really have to talk. Just to make sure I'm understanding your analogy. So, for example, um, with uh, gun control, right? There's bad people in the world. There's school shootings. There are domestic terrorists, things like that. Um, And that's a particular type of harm that, uh, you know, maybe I'm not a gun owner. I don't much care for guns. And I don't care if there are peaceful gun owners out there who get training and who aren't mentally sick and who aren't on drugs and everything like that. To prevent the problem that I think is a big deal— I think that the government should aggress against everybody, and I'm willing to give up my freedoms that I seldom use and don't really care about at the end of the day in order to aggress against everybody else. Am I am I getting your, your point? Yes, and, and you know it's amazing how many people feel that way. And the second thing I'd like to say is something, of course, that you'll relate to as live and let live, and that is our messaging has not been ideal. Um, and, you know, you're, of course, working on that. It's something I work on, too. Uh, and I'll, I won't repeat what you've said. What I will say is that the movement for a long time was based only on stating the moral principle without without actually showing how it works in the real world. And that's an important thing because, obviously, if it doesn't work in the real world for, and help humankind survive and thrive, what good is it? It's not really the moral principle because we really base our morality on what will help humankind. And when I was starting out in the 80s, this, this concept was, was not, <laughs> not adopted at all by the people in the movement. In fact, they thought only the moral arguments were justified. And when I tried to point out how well liberty works for everyone, uh, you know, they would call me a pragmatist, and, and this, this was an insult, by the way, um, because I was making the case of that liberty works. But I think now it's much more accepted that liberty works, and it works because it is right, you know. So so it's two sides of the same right. coin. I think that's more accepted today. You, you know, Mary, I want to push back a little bit on something that you said. You I said you talked about government aggression. And I would, I would submit to you, you're being a little too tough on government here. Let me defend the government for a moment. Wow. First off, let me, let me say, government aggression isn't our only problem here. Individuals aggressing against other people is an equal problem as well. We represent people, uh, not all of them, um, which I think is unfortunate because everybody we represent in a criminal case should be an aggressor, but because our laws are screwed up, we represent people who aren't even aggressors in criminal cases, but that's, that's a side issue. I think we focus too much on government. Number one, um, the problem is not government. The problem is aggression. Whether the government is aggressing, whether a corporation is aggressing, whether a group or an individual is aggressing, it's that's the problem is the aggression. It's not the government. The government, I'll also point out, does lots of good things. I mean, they have trillions of dollars to spend, and they do. And so you wouldn't expect that everything they do is bad. But when the government tracks down an individual who has aggressed, 
gives them a reasonably fair trial, and then punishes them accordingly, which is much of what the governments do, federal and state. There's no problem here. Now, how they're funded is a different question, but how they actually go out and go get people who are aggressors, there's no problem with that at all. So I would say focusing on government aggression is the wrong place because I don't want to attack the government. In fact, I don't attack the government. I say the government should do whatever it wants to do so long as it's held to exactly the same standard that everybody else is. We need to get off our soapbox of going after government because I don't think that's the right message. We need to hold the government to exactly the same standard that everybody else is held to. And as far as stating the principle, it's interesting to hear you say that because not too long ago, uh, I was asked to give a talk to introduce Joe Jorgensen, who was running, as you know, for the uh, as the Libertarian Party uh, person running for president. And so I went and I gave a speech. And, you know, this year, because as I said at the beginning, this is the greatest time ever. There were people who came to listen to Joe Jorgensen because they didn't like Donald Trump for multiple reasons, and they didn't like Joe Biden for multiple reasons. So they probably were scratching their head and saying, you know, isn't there some other, oh yeah, the libertarian, let's go find out what a libertarian is about. And I listened to Joe Jorgensen speak, who I liked very much, by the way, and I think she understood the philosophy very, very well, and she answered all the questions great. But she forgot to mention one thing. It happened to be the most important thing, or the only important thing, if you will, that defines what a libertarian is. The libertarians have a central principle that's called the non-aggression principle. And do you know, the one thing, when somebody says to me, Mark, I'm a libertarian, what I hear in my head is, oh, this is somebody who understands the non-aggression principle and agrees with it. That's what it means to be a libertarian. It doesn't tell me anything about their personal views or how they live their lives or what they put in their bodies or anything about that. I don't know if I want to be friends with this person or not. I don't know anything about that other than they agree, they know what this principle is, and they agree. And because she never mentioned the non-aggression principle even once, then people walked out of there thinking, oh, okay, there's some issues here that kind of sound like what the Republicans used to sound like on economics and what the people on the left used to sound like on civil liberties. And that seems pretty good, but they walked away not knowing anything about the principle. And I think that's this right. is a horrible unusual. mistake. You know, when I, when I started running for office, it was in the 1980s. So when we said we were libertarians, people would say, you mean you're librarians? <laughs> <laughs> so we had to distinguish ourselves. And, of course, we talked about the non-aggression principle and its application, how the government didn't follow it. Um, and, and we got a very good response. But I'd say 50% of the candidates, libertarian candidates that run today, I mean, if you listen to them, you would wonder if they even knew what the non-aggression Right, was. I agree. And, and I, I feel very badly about that because we're not distinguishing ourselves from, you know, the other parties by doing that. And yeah. This is one thing, I think this is, uh, um, there was a big movement in the 90s to get rid of the idea that we had to stay the party of principle as we grow. There was a whole faction that fought against 
putting that in our game plan. And I know because I was part of those strategy sessions. And unfortunately, I believe that that faction has kind of won out in the party, and they feel it's more important to win elections. Well, you know, you can you can win. I mean, look at Ron Paul. Let's just assume he was, I mean, he was a libertarian in spirit, at least. So we had him in Congress. But the problem that he had was he was one person. And, you know, Congress operates with a majority. So it's very difficult for him to actually roll back big government. We do that much more effectively, rolling back big government without electing anyone. And I've, I've given talks on this. You know, we've we've been able to roll back taxes and regulations, and and even really, it was it was libertarians who defeated Clinton Care, uh, and the same arguments we used against Clinton Care. And the reason I say that, I recognize 80% of the people who were fighting against <laughs> they were libertarians, right? So those same arguments were used against Obamacare, and that's why he had to kind of sneak through the back door to get it passed. And, you know, we, we can be very successful rolling back big government without electing anyone. And this message has been lost. Now, back when I started running, we knew we weren't going to win. <laughs> but because we ran, people would come up to us and say, and in fact, I'll tell you a real life story. We ran for city commission. It was supposed to be nonpartisan, but the, 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 the newspapers and everything called us libertarians because they thought it would turn everyone off. Well, it didn't turn everyone off because they knew we stood for low taxes or no taxes, if that were possible. And they didn't like their taxes being so high. So we got a lot of support. And after that, when the city government wanted to impose the biggest tax they'd ever done by doing a rail consolidation plan that would involve eminent domain, and the hugest bond issue the city had ever known. I was at a meeting to, you know, fight against that, and I had an older gentleman come up and put $200 in my hand, and he said, Dr. Ruart, I know your employer, Upjohn, is going to benefit from this eminent domain, but you, Dr. Ruart, are a libertarian. So take this money and fight, because they're going to try to take the bicycle shop that my brother and I built up through eminent domain. Please stop it. I mean, that's the level of trust that you get when you start talking about principles and people know where you stand then. So we are, I think, I think the Libertarian Party is, is making a mistake, not making sure that their candidates are talking about the non-aggression principle all the time. They're leading with, um, they're leading with positions on specific issues that are radical from the status quo, right? They're they're the right positions, but currently there a lot of them are not popular. When you lead with something like legalize methamphetamine, that's the right thing to do. It's the moral thing to do. That's you know without giving a principle of self ownership and giving a principle of you're in charge of you. That's just a shocking thing that's going to scare away the most people. It's the correct thing. It's the moral position. It's the high road as far as morality goes. It recognizes a separation between the legal and the moral world. It recognizes the individual as the iron-fisted dictator of their own body. But the general public isn't there yet. It's the wrong way to present the message. This is why, this is why 
the Live In Let Live movement, which is named Live In Let Live, right up front, leads with the Live In Let Live principle. Before we even talk about any issues at all, You're, if you want to talk to me about what I think about political philosophy or anything about the world or the law, I'm always going to start, and you're not going to get me to move anywhere else. I'm going to start with the live and let live principle. So my question right. to you, Mary, as somebody mm-hmm. who, who has been in what you might call the freedom movement for decades now, is is there something more important than the effort to get more people to accept the what I will call the live in let live principles? Is there something more important we should be doing than that? No, I mean, that's the basis. And if you don't give people a focus, a basis, how are they going to extrapolate your position? Right. You know, they can't. So you have to lead so, with the principle, and you have to have as your goal, we're going to attract more people to accept and understand and live in accordance with the principle. And that's our goal in the Live and Let Live movement. Also, regarding government, do I need to say anything more than the government should be held to the same standard and it shouldn't get to violate the rule the same as everybody else. Is it, does that exhaust everything I need to say about government? Probably not because people don't realize the government aggressive. And this is what I found out when I would talk to students. So what I would do is put three different political philosophies on the board. I'd say the minority should rule the majority the majority should rule the minority or everyone should rule themselves as long as they don't initiate physical force, fraud, or theft against others. And I said, okay, if you got to design the world, what, which philosophy would you pick? And I asked them to raise their hands. <laughs> and it was very interesting. Very few, if any, Um, raised it for the minority should rule the majority. In fact, I think they were kind of faking it, you know. Um, A lot of people raised their hand for the majority should rule the minority. But most of them, I would say 90% in most classes, you know, basically raised their hand for the libertarian principle. But when I explained what that meant, when I explained how that applied to, say, taxation or regulations, then I, I... you know, they back up, wait, 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 no, no, can't do that. <laughs> and then they default to this business of, well, wait a minute, we have to have rules on this. We have to stop people from taking drugs. So in this area, we have to have government aggression. And again, as I said earlier, uh, they were willing to give up quite a few of their freedoms in order to be able to go after a group that they felt was um, a threatening group of some in some ways, and of course, you know, one could argue, okay, if if a, a war on drugs actually stopped people from taking drugs, you know, maybe you'd have an argument. But of course, I wouldn't argue that. No, I wouldn't argue that. I I know people who take drugs and are happy to take drugs, and if they're happy to take drugs and it's their body and they're not putting anybody else at risk, that's their choice. So, I guess. Oh, yeah, but- that way you see this is it even if they agree with the principle and they voted for it i didn't tell them it was a libertarian philosophy yet you know because i wanted them to i wanted them to recognize that the live and let live principle as you're calling it or the non-aggression principle as we called it at that point in time that that 
that philosophy was actually the one they would choose. And I actually asked them, now, how do you perceive, before I even told them it was a libertarian philosophy, I said, how do you perceive the U.S. government operates today? And the, the hands went up mostly for the minority rules, the majority. Right. Um, and then some majority rules, minority. Nobody raised their hand because the libertarian philosophy or the non-aggression principle or the live and let live, however you want to say it. And that's where I think um, I learned something very important. Uh, people really feel, uh, many people, not everybody, of course, many people really feel that they are willing to give up their freedoms as long as they can control a particular group. And this is something that we really don't address in general. Um, and I don't know that we can address it because if people have very strong feelings about wanting to control gays or people who take drugs or, or something like that, I'm not sure you're going to change their minds. We're going to change their minds. I'm, I'm interested in changing their minds and I'm optimistic about changing their minds because a couple of points. Number one, I'm, I don't need to convince everybody, okay? And as an example, we can think about the American Revolution, and it's estimated because we don't know for sure. Highest estimate I've ever seen is about a third of the people supported the American Revolution. Estimates as low as 10%, too. I don't know which is true, but let's just go with the, the third. Okay, that's not that many. That's more than we, than we have now. But we don't ha- I'm happy to say to two-thirds of the people, look, we don't need you anyways. And so that's fine. Yeah, yeah. If they're unreasonable, no problem. But but second point, I think, and I've been like you for many decades now having these discussions with people. And what I've found is there is a certain way that the discussion has to proceed. First, you have to talk about the principle. And you have to really explain the principle. And you have to get agreement on the principle. Because if you don't have agreement on the principle, it doesn't make sense to talk about another thing. You stick with that. That's number one. Once you get agreement with the principle, you have to then get people to see that the principle applies to groups and corporations and most importantly, governments. Then you got to stop there and you got to really, as I say in my book, get them to swear the blood oath, right? Why would we ever want the government? We got to really lock them in. This is some of this is just sort of cross-examination stuff that we do as lawyers. What you do, Mm -hmm. there's some very famous um, cross-examiners, some lawyers named Posner and Dodd, and what the way they explain it when you're crossing, they say to do a good cross-examination, think of it as taking somebody through a hallway and you're backing up, and as you're backing up, you're closing the doors, you're closing the escape hatches, so there's nowhere to go. Because guess what? If you get them to agree to the principle and you get them to agree that that principle applies to all groups and corporations and governments, you got everything you need. All you got to do, and I usually say to them at that point, well, one of two things is going to happen. Number one, we're going to agree on everything. Or number two, you're going to change your mind about the principle or how it applies or something like that. But if you don't solidify that first before you move to the issues, they're not going to have any chance of convincing even up to a third, in my opinion. So in our movement, we lay all of that out. And then the very important thing that you point out, when you say people want to control other people on gays and this and that, they have strong feelings. I don't want to tell them they're wrong. The only thing I want to do is convince them that there's a difference between a legal role 
and an ethical rule, and they're both important, and I want to encourage them to hold whatever ethics rules they want to hold. If they want to, even if they want to hate gay people or, or whatever, they, whatever their opinion is, if you're in the moral world, then you have to use persuasion. You don't get to use the law. And we got to get that point across before we move to the issues. I think there's no other way to be effective in terms of communicating our philosophy. Now, I've never liked the non-aggression principle. People hear that and they say, what the heck does that mean? But I will tell you, and you should try this, if you talk to the average person and say, hey, I'm just for live and let live, I can, I've yet to find anybody who says, no, I don't think that makes sense to me. They usually... Yeah, ven- oh, will you, have, yeah. will you, I would like to I talk, Mary, I'd like to talk <laughs> to that person and maybe we have them on the podcast because some, and, and I'll spend up to 60 seconds talking to them about this because maybe we got a definitional problem. Maybe something like that's going on. But the vast majority of people, let's just say, Let's be very conservative here. And I'll say 75% of the people will say, yeah, I agree with live and let live. Because most people do agree with that. There's already many ways in many different languages and many different places on the planet Earth where people are already saying, I'm for live and let I live. I think what Mary's uh, concern is that she's bringing up, though, and that she very eloquently pointed out, is it's easy to say, I'm for live and let live. Just like all the hands in her classroom went up when she pitched a libertarian worldview, right? right. And then once you explain it in practice the hands start going because you down. can't go from going down you can't go from i agree with to live and let live and now let's talk about the issues you got to put a finer point on that it's important it, we don't have to go very far but we got to get their agreement on force on fraud on coercion on substantial risks and most importantly that it applies equally to everybody in every group no matter no matter how big including the government if you don't get those things there's no sense of moving on to the issues because you haven't laid the intellectual groundwork that frankly is pretty easy. If you're a reasonable person, I'm going to get you to agree to every baby step there. And if you already are in that, my estimation, 75% of people who say they love live and let live, the wind is at your back. They want to agree with live and let live because they just committed to it. So I believe there's a way to present this that won't be 100% effective, but it'll be more than 33% effective as long as we upgrade our message. And another thing, by the way, while I'm, while I'm on the libertarians, you know, you can be a perfect libertarian and a complete jerk, right? You can say, uh, I... I don't like blacks, I don't like Jews, I don't like anybody who's not like, I'm not doing business with them, and I hate them, I wish them horrible things, but if you don't initiate force, fraud, or coercion, or create substantial risks, you are as perfect a libertarian as you could ever possibly be, because that's what libertarianism is about, not to knock on libertarianism, but to say it's not enough. This is why I lead often with the aspirational values, not with the principle. I say, hey, uh, there's a new movement called Live and Let Live. And let me tell you about it. It's a peace movement. It's, it's pushing open-mindedness and tolerance and civility and voluntary kindness. And I can tell you the good people of the world, whether they're on the left or whether they're on the right, they like that. If, if they don't like that, Mary, they're not likely to agree to our principle in the first place. So, so to say that, look, the group of people who would say, no, Mark, I disagree with those aspirational values and also agree with the principle, 
that's a very, very small group, right? Because you have to have some, to some extent, be open-minded to tolerate other people doing things you don't agree with. So to add these, yes, to add these in explicitly and to put it out there in the world and talk about the aspirational values, maybe even first, gets people more open-minded. Because as you know, and as I know for sure, because I was one of these flunkies who used to do this, I would lead the discussion with, hey, I'm for legalized meth. How do you like that? Or I think the government should, we should terminate the government or some horrible thing. Or, or I would start with, uh, you know, taxes are robbery. Do you agree with me on that? And I've noticed over the years, this is a very bad place to start the discussion, right? Yeah, certainly. Certainly. Well, of course, now, um, I wanted to go back to another point you made, because I think it's important for your listeners to to really have this um, drilled in. Because, you know, there's been studies on what causes a paradigm shift and how what percent of the people you need for the paradigm shift. And it's between, as you were mentioning earlier, 5 to 10%. Mm. So, you know, the thing is, we don't need to go after the entire population, which is an important thing, because I think a lot of people are getting discouraged about the freedom movement, especially in the U.S. And we really only need a small percentage of the people to really understand it. And, um, of course, one of the things um, I've encountered, which maybe you haven't, because, I mean, what I do normally is I'm working in a very tight timeline. I'm either you know, get two or three minutes to talk as a candidate or in the classroom, I actually got 40 minutes, which was more than usual. <laughs> and so that was very good because I could interact with the students and find out where they were. And I did get a lot of people signing up to learn more about the libertarian philosophy, which was really good. But like I said, it was interesting. It was the best learning curve I could have ever done because I, I tell you, students, they are they're really good about uh, challenging you, you know, So, because they're really, they're curious. You know, they haven't gotten everything drilled into them yet, <laughs> shall we say. Although I have to say, when I started in the classroom, I used to be able to say things like, well, we all know that the government, how inefficient the government is, and everyone would nod their heads. If I said that 10 years later, the teacher would challenge me. <laughs> and, and I don't say it yeah, at all. I, I see no, no reason no, to I, say that. Yeah, we don't say that anymore, yeah. right? Who, ca- well, who cares no, whether the government's I, efficient or not? Yeah, I'm just explaining, though, the change in the, change in the attitude um, that has happened, probably mostly due to the fact that we've got government education and it's very regulated to basically showcase the government as a parent. Now, I want to, you know, I just want to remind everybody about that again, because it's something I don't think we appreciate that the government has put in, has been put into the position of almost an all-knowing God, if I might say that. And that has not been true. I don't think that was true when we were younger. At least I don't recall that type of government worship. In fact, I almost would say that it was just the opposite. Today, um, it's just amazing. Um, And we had, uh, you know, one of our Liberty International conferences, we actually had a lady from Harvard who was a student there. And she came in and she told us it's very fashionable today for students in Harvard to call themselves communists or socialists. Mm -hmm. And she said, if you don't agree with that, you know, if you try to explain the non-aggression principle or capitalism or free markets or anything like that, um, you know, you really are um, marginalized. 
And we had that that talk up on our site for a while. She asked us to take it down because she was getting so much flack from the professors and from the students. So there's been a big shift, too, in the audience's, uh, you know, knowledge base when we talk to them. So that is another another very sad thing. But the good news is we have the Internet today. And so, like, we're doing this Zoom call, and this will be on the Internet. And the truth is on the Internet. And this is very interesting. I mean, there's a lot of non-truth as well, but the truth is out there. So one of the things I always like to say is, is that the secret of getting out of poverty is on the Internet. There's no reason a country can't be wealthy today because look at what Hong Kong did in 40 years. Yeah. It went from a rock with almost no resources to rivaling the per capita income of the U.S. Uh, up, you know, up until the time China took over. And even a few years after that, it, it still was moving forward. Uh, so, you know, poverty is going to become obsolete. And I think that that's an important point because so many things, that people want government to do is around poverty. They think it's going to cure poverty, and actually it is the, it's the biggest creator of poverty today. The, the poorer countries are all ones in which the government is much more aggressive than it is even in the U.S. So this is something important because today most people are liberal-minded or <laughs> call themselves socialists or communists. I think it's an important point that we need to make. And again, I find that many libertarians don't always understand that concept. So this is, this is, we need, we need to do our homework. We need to know what works and the studies are out there. It's, it's accessible to all of us. And I'm, I'm very proud to say that I kind of started that, I think to some extent when I wrote Healing Our World and it still is the largest, or I say largest, most comprehensive, uh, listing, I think, of how liberty works in the real world. So if your listeners are interested in that, I actually have a copy, uh, the 93 edition in my free library. And they might be interested in that because, like I said, we have to do our homework (laughs) in messaging, as you're talking about, and and knowing what the results are. You know, as you said, you were able to do that because your professor gave you a tool. You know, what do you think would happen? And that's a great tool. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's helpful. I have found it's very helpful to have data for people to look at um, in a very obviously concise way, not necessarily in a scientific way and, and a very compelling way. So I wanted to invite your listeners to make use of that through my free library. Yeah. They want. And can, can you plug that, please? Where can they find that? Yeah, that's at my website, ruart.com, R-U-W-A-R-T.com. Ruart.com, just like my name. Um, and if you go to the homepage on the bottom right-hand side, you can social media, which is much more current than my website. <laughs> I need to redo my website. Unfortunately, I got hacked, so it's kind of a mess right now, but the social media is up to date. You know, Mary, the thing that you said that got me so fired up and optimistic and excited about what we're working on here, and I hope you're right about this, is that five to ten percent that's all we need are you kidding me i know right now as i sit here that there are definitely five to ten percent of the people who absolutely would love what we're saying if they just heard what we're saying and understood it and so in order to get that done 
we got to trim the message down and make it really simple. It's not that most people are opposed to this stuff. Most people are just apathetic to the goings-on of the government. Right. Especially now that we now we have kind of disenfranchised-feeling ex-Democrats and ex-Republicans. This isn't my party anymore. What I, don't, I feel like I don't have a home anymore. Ah, this government thing's all screwed up. Now's a perfect time. Yeah, people, we're swimming upstream if we're going to tell them we got to do away with the government or anything. I say, look, big government, small government, no government, don't care. Just don't violate the rule. The other thing that you said, and I got to tell you, I don't want to argue about it. And I don't argue about it anymore. Whether capitalism is better than socialism. We got a lot of people who like socialism. And I say to them, okay. I'm not going to tell you what economic system to choose. The only thing I care about is that the rule is not violated. So if you want to be a socialist, no problem. You can get together with the other socialists if you like. And I, I say this with really nothing. I'm not trying to say anything bad about it. If you want to pool your money together and you guys decide what things you want to pay out of that common um pile of money who am i to tell them they can't do that so what i call voluntary socialism socialism that does not violate the rule which is the only thing i care about because if you listen to me long enough you'll be tired of me saying the same thing over and over again which is do whatever you want don't violate the rule same with capitalism if you want to trade goods with other people, as long as there's no force, fraud, or coercion, have fun. But if you want to get involved in what I would call crony capitalism, right, where you give money to some representative who passes the law to advantage one corporation over another or group of people or whatever, well, this violates the rule. And for that reason alone, I'm against it. I say the same thing about involuntary socialism. So for somebody who says, look, we want to pool our resources, but you know, we've decided that Mary Ruart's got to be involved in it, whether she likes it or not. The discussion isn't about whether capitalism is better than socialism or socialism is better. The only discussion that we need to have is you're violating the rule. You don't get to drag Mary Ruard or Andy Markintel or Mark Victor or anybody else into your economic system if they don't want to be a part of it. Is there anything else that I need to say about socialism besides do whatever you want, don't sometimes, violate the rule? What? Yeah, sometimes personally, because they say it won't work unless everyone's involved, so we have to force... Then it won't work. We don't get to... This is somebody... And I guess what I'm saying to you is we don't we don't need to keep ask people who kind of don't get it, at least in principle, because we only need that five to ten percent for the paradigm shift. But that five to ten percent needs to really know their stuff. And and I have to say, I, I'm sorry to say that I think the Libertarian Party as an entity has has you know fallen away from the messaging around the principles, yes. which I think is really you made this point earlier so eloquently, which is we're missing a great opportunity to distinguish ourselves yeah. from the other two parties. Like right now, for example, yeah. the, the other two parties are completely unprincipled. Right now, for example, the yeah. left is engaging in, I guess you could call it cancel culture, censorship, shut down opposing ideas. I thought a couple decades ago this was the party of free speech. Not You wouldn't even have to go back that far. On the other hand, the Republicans, okay— well, 
I, I thought these guys were about free markets and let's make the government small and less taxation. Oh, I don't even recognize They're this Republican Party. Tariffs these, and all the, these other these things. Are, these are symptoms of being incredibly unprincipled. Yeah. And again, I want to just preface what I said before about capitalism and socialism with I'm not having this discussion with anybody unless and until they have already agreed on the principle and that it applies to everybody. If I've got that handshake agreement or a fist bump or whatever, once they say, yes, Mark, I agree on that, then I don't believe I got to say anything more about capitalism. And so I don't want to get it. I'm look, I'm not an economist. I don't want to get into arguments about whether the Laffer curve uh, has been debunked or not, or whatever various economic, if we think that we got to win that argument, we're barking up the wrong tree. We, the good news is we don't. The only thing we got to do is get people to buy into the principle and that it applies to everybody. And then all I need to say about government is don't violate the rule. All I need to say about socialism is don't violate the rule. All I got to say about every issue is don't violate the rule. If they know what the rule is and how it applies, I got them. They're on my team. They're live and let livers. So I think the way we present this by adding in aspirational values, by leading with the principle, by calling it live and let live, by not arguing about the size of government, by not arguing about capitalism or socialism, by not arguing about little implementation issues that we don't have to resolve. Local communities will have differences on how they apply this. By not arguing about what's the best way to get from here to there. People have different ideas on that and that's fine these are not things we should be arguing about we should be laser focused on the principle imagine if the movement was called the non-aggression principle movement and everybody said i love the non-aggression principle think about that how having the wind at our back and that's where we are on live and let live because i can tell you as a lawyer who loves to argue and, and go back and forth with people, they, about the easiest argument I have is to convince somebody to buy into the live and let live principle, right? If they say, no, this is going to be fun. We got a lot to talk. But why, am I, why would I talk about, you know, socialism or legalized drugs or euthanasia or taxes or anything else? Unless I get agreement on that principle, because if I don't agree, get agreement on that principle, they're going to be arguing about other things. They don't see the difference between a legal rule and a moral rule. We got to put this stuff right out at up front. And so as soon as we talk about the aspirational values, just like I did at the beginning of this podcast, we got to follow up with we don't want the law to require this. These are ethics, moral rules, which you're free to break if you like. If we don't lay that groundwork before we have the discussion, we're going to get nowhere. And friends, we're at the end of our time here, but Dr. Ruard, I wanted to give you the last word in response to any of that rant that Mark just went on. <laughs> and then also, uh, I'd like you to say a word about uh, Liberty International, yes. because I know that you're involved in that. I'm going to see you there in Columbia. Yeah, well, International. Yeah. I, I'm chair of it. It used to be called International Society for Individual Liberty with the unfortunate acronym of ISIL. So we got hacked multiple times and decided <laughs> we better change the name. But it's been around for a long time. In fact, I learned libertarian principles from the little trifolds that the um, ISIL had put out. Um, there are like 36 different issue papers, and I actually found them helpful because one of the things, even if you agree on the non-aggression principle, applying it sometimes yes. is where people have a problem. They don't 
for example, they don't see the government aggression, so you have to kind of point it out to them, for example. And these pamphlets were very helpful, and we're resurrecting them as video pamphlets because that's the modern way. That's the way of the world. And we, in the fall, we're going to have Libertarian Solutions 2.0. We had 1.0 last year. 1.0 dealt with the principles and some of the issues that people kind of get hung up on. This is going to be for the individual. In other words, how can an individual be more free in a non-free world? And we don't have our PR out yet, but you can go to liberty-intl.org liberty-intl.org and if you sign up for our newsletter you'll hear all about it so i encourage you to do that and um you know i guess that the thing i would leave everyone with is this 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 uh how can i say it the um discrepancy i guess you would say between accepting the principle and then applying it this is where i have found that people have trouble grasping that application and you know it's great if you have people coming to you and they give you a lot of time but if you don't have all that time sometimes you have to do sound bites and in my book short answers to the tough questions uh provide some of those um i had a column with the advocates for self-government where i answered those questions and compiled them so that also is uh, available, and some of those short answers, again, are free on my website, um, and of course, all my books are for sale there or at Amazon, and uh, they're all in Kindle, EPUB, or PDF. Let's just put a shout out to our, our friend who has long passed, Marshall Fritz, who uh, was really yes. one of the best people at explaining how to apply this. And I got to say, um, I, I use some of his techniques in my book in terms of explaining uh, if wrong becomes right, uh, just because the majority agree in those types of things. And he did a fan. This was a big loss to the freedom world when we lost Marshall. Um, but anyway, so we, we've got lots of mutual friends and I will see you in Colombia unless the rioting or craziness in Colombia gets worse than it is right now. Um, I plan to come there and you should know there could be a little subtle takeover of that conference by the live and let livers because we're coming in force. And, you know, there's so much overlap between our two groups. Um, people like Ken Schooland, who's been on this podcast, and Yatsik, and uh, many of the people involved in Liberty International who were involved in the International Society uh, for Individual Liberty as well. Uh, th- there's a very natural uh, synergy between the two groups. And so I'm coming there to, un- to talk about Live and Let Live to the entire group. And I'm really excited about it because this is the very group that we need to talk to. We're a global movement. And I'm so thankful for the work that you have done and that you've done with Liberty International and that really you've done over the decades that you've been a real warrior and I didn't even get to ask you the thing I was curious about which is why don't we have more women in this movement why am I always talking to guys about freedom and peace and liberty maybe you can give me an answer to that because I still don't know in fact as a as a guy who likes to hang out with women uh, preferably to men why aren't there more women in this movement <laughs> Joey, well, I, Joey's I think, laughing I think, that I think we haven't emphasize the compassion of libertarianism. Yes. And it is very compassionate. As I said Good earlier, uh, it's the end of poverty, <laughs> which could be as a major global issue, right? And so, you know, because if you're, if you're poor, you don't live as long. I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's a matter of life and death, literally. 
so, you know, we haven't emphasized how the non-aggression principle or the live and let live principle, however you want to say it, really enriches the lives of everyone, even those who think they benefit by today's system. And uh, I could tell stories about that. Maybe if we do this again, I will. But I just want to say that it's very, very important to show that we care. And if we don't care, then we're going to have a hard time convincing people because I think there's a natural reaction for people that that if somebody doesn't really care about their neighbor, doesn't have that universal love of neighbor, goodwill towards all, that's another way of saying it. Um, you know, if they don't have that, then people are suspicious. And I think there's some good reasons for that. Yeah, and this <laughs> so, is. I, I think these I, aspirational, yeah, the, the aspirational values part of this movement will help to solve this problem. Yep, yep. It'll help because what people hear, especially, for example, our brothers and sisters on the left, when they hear that the conclusion of what do you mean no tax, no no involuntary taxation, that means no welfare programs. What about all the, the starving folks that are going to die without Papa government to give them their, their welfare check? That's uncompassionate. It's completely, you don't care about human life. This is where the libertarians have said, well, we're not going to comment any further on that. All we can tell you is what should be in the law and what shouldn't be in the law. The live and let movement's going to go further than that. Much I, further. In fact, I, I like to say to my friends on the left, I, like Bernie Sanders, for example, maybe we get him on the podcast. We'll have to invite him. I'd like to say, brother Bernie, you and I are in agreement on goals. You see people less fortunate in the world and think we should help them, and I couldn't agree more. I would spend time on how much I agree on that ethical principle. I would say, Bernie, the only thing we disagree on is I think these are ethics questions. You think these are legal questions. And the reason I think they're better ethics questions because we don't all agree on morality. You you and I tend to agree on this issue, but other people have different ethics uh, priorities like Sharia law or other things. And the only answers we have to give these people are, number one, either our morality is better than your morality, so sorry, we're going to enforce ours on yours, which would create, as you would expect, a war of all against all, or answer number two. Look, we've decided that because we value a free and peaceful society, that all the moralities coming out of all, even ours that we agree with, we're taking that out of the law. And so part of our movement is voluntary kindness. Let's get together and help these people because it's an important value and it'll help get us to peace. We need to be strong on the ethics part of this movement, and we are. And I think that we have uh, maybe refined, and we're, we're building, of course, on the tremendous work, intellectual and otherwise, that has come before us of many, many decades, maybe even centuries of thinkers before us. We're building on that, and it's, it's the time we need to refine it as good as possible, put it out there in a nice, polished way, and let's get our 5 to 10%. I think we'll get more than 50% if people will hear and understand the very simple message that we're giving them. Doctor, that was a great final point to emphasize the importance of the compassion of the movement. Yep. Yeah. Well, what a great conversation we've had. This is a great way to break in this wonderful new studio. We're and not virgins anymore now. That's we, true. That's true. <laughs> um, doctor, there well, were just... Thanks for inviting me. Of, co of course, it was our pleasure, and there was just so many different paths that we could have gone down to, and so many more stories and insights and wonderful, poignant points that you could have brought. We're going to have to invite you back, hopefully maybe even in person someday. It's really cool in here, That'd actually. Be great. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing you in Columbia, 
and uh, maybe spending a little time talking about the state of the world and how we improve it and how we can work together and synergize and uh, get our two organizations to work together. And so we uh, we want to do as much of that as possible. I think it's an urgent matter that we win this we win this uh, argument and we get our position across. It's no longer just a convenience. We gotta we gotta actually make it happen. So thanks for coming on the show and thanks again for everything you do and everything that you have done. We've been talking to Dr. Mary Ruart. She's a research scientist. She's an ethicist, a libertarian author and activist. She's heavily involved in Liberty International, and she's been a fantastic guest. We've had a great conversation. This is attorney Andy Markintel and Mark J. Victor. Once again, we are the Attorneys for Freedom. You can check out our law firm at attorneysforfreedom.com. And importantly, check out liveandletlive.org for this podcast and many more um, to people who are now tuning in on YouTube, we have video now, so it's good to uh, for you to both see and hear us over there on this new uh, medium. And uh, we want to give a special shout-out. We've got people in the background over here working audio and cameras and hitting buttons and switches. Thank you so much to our technical crew. You guys yep. rock. Thank you to the marketing team and everything like that for putting it together. You did a great job. Uh, get in contact with us. My email is andy, A-N-D-Y, at attorneysforfreedom.com. Mark's is similar. Mark, M-A-R-C, at attorneysforfreedom.com. And send us some emails. We love taking questions. We love answering, especially if you disagree. Did something we say, are there some uh, some wokesters out there, or some communists, or Marxists, or... Uh, People who disagree with the principle we're putting out. We'd love to hear from you. Maybe there's some fascists out there. Whoever, I mean, if you, if you disagree with our principles, we want to talk to you yeah. in the most civil and polite and uh, organized way as possible to put everything out there. This movement is in the crucible, and we want to talk to everybody about it from all walks of life. In fact, we need you. We need to change hearts yeah. and minds on yeah. this. And if you like what we're saying, come to the liveandletlive.org website and join the movement. Be part of the solution. Stop just crabbing about it. Let's get out there and do something. If we work together, we can make it happen. This has been the Peace Radicals Podcast, signing out. Peace.